Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Firms Consulting podcast. Um, today, we have a very interesting and a very, very accomplished uh, guest, uh, Bill Madisoni. Thank you for joining us, Bill. Nice to be here. So I don't want to butcher Bill's background because he's got one of the most interesting backgrounds I've read. So I'm going to let Bill do an introduction, uh, talking through his background, his career, and then we'll get into the podcast. How does that sound, Bill? That sounds fine. Whenever you're ready to go. You want a little background on me? Yeah. Uh, how far back should we go? To western Pennsylvania and the coal mining town where I grew up? I, I think we actually should back. start in the coal mining town because I think that's yeah. one of the most interesting things about your background. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy who's had a lot of lucky breaks, and one of them was, uh, you know, uh, my mother forced me to take a, a test to get into Andover and Exeter, and believe it or not, before I knew it, I had full scholarships to both. Graduated at the top of my class from Andover, then had a full scholarship to Harvard College, and uh, pulled around there for four years. I had a great time. Uh, long and short, went out to Colorado, taught, got into stocks and bonds, and then went back to Harvard Business School because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't particularly like business. I'm not really interested in business, and I'm not interested in management. So it's kind of ironic that I ended up at McKinsey. Yeah. <laughs> um, Went back to business school, endured it, did fine, uh, joined a social marketing organization in Washington, which I really loved because it made me feel like I was doing something for the world and at the same time making decent money back then, thirty, forty thousand $40,000 decent money. But I got into the whole issue of social marketing and you would say, you know, and social marketing is basically marketing where the exchange is not facilitated by money but by behavior change. People have to get their uh, have to take their blood pressure medicine, mm -hmm. for example. They have to get their breast examined. A lot of it was health care, but there were other issues too, environmental issues, etc. But behavior change was the exchange. Taught me how to think about product, price, place, and promotion differently than I had learned in business school. And um, believe it or not, that's how I got into McKinsey because uh, I didn't interview McKinsey when I left Harvard Business School. Um, but I learned this, you know, how to sell intangibles. And selling consulting is, you know, it's a very intangible, ephemeral product, uh, even though we try to tighten it up with value propositions, et cetera. It's still, you know, tell me again what you're going to do for me. How come I can't do that myself? I learned that as a social marketer after I got out of Harvard Business School. Long and short, I, I uh, took a job with one of my clients, which was the United Way of America, Ended up writing all the football spots that were on the TV for years. You know, I'm, I'm Franco Harris from the Pittsburgh Steelers. I love United Way, et cetera. I loved it. I mean, I just had lots of fun. Dated Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. I mean, what more? <laughs> you know? And, like uh, a and good McKinsey, life. Yeah, it was a good life. And I was a bachelor. Driving around my Mustang convertible. And uh, McKinsey, uh, a headhunter from McKinsey shows up one day and says, we're looking for somebody to help us market McKinsey. BCG is beating us to the punch in the Harvard Business Review. They've got ideas. We're starting to look like a dinosaur. Can you help us? And I said, no. I'm having way too good a time here in Washington. They came back six months later and said, we really would like you to consider this job. We'll double your compensation. And you might even make a partner in this position. And that's not happened at McKinsey before. And at that point, I said yes, because I realized I had to get out of charity and philanthropy. Mm -hmm. you, you can't stay in that sector too long. So when I went up and joined McKinsey. There was no job description. Uh, Ron Daniel, the managing partner at the time, said, you write the job description. You figure this out. You know, you're a smart guy. Uh, they wanted me because of my background, uh, and they really did want me to figure it out. And what I figured out was you don't manage a function like marketing mm -hmm. at a consulting firm, especially McKinsey. How are you going to manage Germany, right? Mm -hmm. uh, these guys are headstrong. They've got their own little fiefdoms. I'm going to walk in and say, here's how we got to market McKinsey in Germany. What you do, so you don't approach it as a management task. What you do is you find guys to make history with mm -hmm. at McKinsey. And I was lucky enough to have guys at McKinsey with whom I could do that. And to come back to the poor boy background, there were, there were a lot of young partners in McKinsey young senior partners in McKinsey who had poor backgrounds as well. You know, they were go-getters. Uh, they were trendsetters. They were willing to change things and shake things up back in the early 80s when I joined McKinsey. 
Fred Gluck, who was about to become managing partner mm-hmm. in six or seven years, you know, grew up in a two-room uh, apartment in Brooklyn with his five or six sisters and brothers. Uh, you know, there were other guys from different parts of the world. Uh, Herb Hensler, who became a very powerful person, you know, came out of World War II with tuberculosis, uh, you know, struggled. Um, wow. Uh, you know, you had guys like that and, and guys like Ken Omai and guys like Tom Peters and Bob Waterman. Uh, and they all became my friends as well as clients at McKinsey. And we made history together, you know, with In Search of Excellence. Uh, Omai wrote 37 editorials for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and he did it with conviction and real insight. You know, he walked into my office one morning and said, I'm angry. And I said, why are you angry, Omai son? He said, uh, because In Search of Excellence isn't that good a book. I had better ideas. <laughs> this is typical of McKinsey. You know, he's got yeah. such egos. And I said, well, what's your idea? He said, there's no trade deficit with the United States, because that was the big issue. Yeah. And I said, can you prove that? And he said, yeah. Uh, all I do is add up what uh, the U.S. sends over to Japan, uh, and then I add to it 50% of what they make there, because they only have 50% of the equity in those companies. And then I divide it by the population of Japan. So on a per capita basis, I do that in Japan mm-hmm. than I do in the United States, and guess what? Japan consumes more American goods and vice versa. It was in the Wall Street Journal within a week. And a very controversial viewpoint at that time, right? Absolutely. But not only controversial outside McKinsey, but inside. And this was about the time of the Robocop movie, if I'm not mistaken. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And certainly, you know, um, we, we, up to that point, published in Harvard Business Mm Review. But I got to know people at the Journal. I liked them more. And I thought that was a better place for McKinsey. I'll come back to that later because I was trying to reposition McKinsey. Um, in any case, uh, the Omai's article runs. The first call I get is from the partner handling Motorola out in Chicago who says, what the hell are you doing? Who is that guy? And what's he doing publishing this crap in the journal? Mm-hmm. And I said, Mike, uh, that's your partner. He's a senior partner. He runs the Tokyo office. And if you got a different and better point of view, let me know. I'll get in the journal again. No more discussion on that, you know, because we're not going to muzzle a partner. Yeah, makes sense. And, and we positioned Omai as a guy who was not speaking for McKinsey. He was a senior partner of McKinsey, but he wasn't speaking for the firm. And that was one of my first policy moves, was to say no one speaks for McKinsey. But if you got something to say, you speak out. And eventually you had guys like John Sawhill, another good friend of mm-hmm. mine, writing out to break up the big oil companies. He said it made no sense to have integrated global oil companies. Again, the same reaction. You know, five partners from the energy practice call me and say, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, within two weeks, Sawhill was invited into every boardroom of every major oil company around the world. Why? Because he had something to say. that wasn't the kind of, you know, rerun economist stuff mm-hmm. yeah. that consultants publish. You know, um, uh, and, and the same with O'Brien when he wrote Breaking Up the Bank. Again, you know, why are these big integrated banks? Why are they necessary? Management should break them up themselves. So we started a tradition there. Uh, but to come back to, to, to all my, my point here is I approached changing communications and marketing at McKinsey by really finding guys who had courage and had insight and wanted to do something. And, and of course, you know, everybody tried to jump on the bandwagon sure. later. Um, but I was fortunate to have guys like that around me. And they were only, you know, Lowell, Lowell Bryan was my age. Sawhill was maybe a half generation ahead of me. Same with Omai. Gluck was a full generation ahead of me. But I was sort of between the senior guys really making it happen at McKinsey and the next generation. And the long and short of it was in two years I was elected partner at McKinsey because we, you know, we made something happen. Um, you could... You can ask, well, what were you trying to do in general? And what I was trying to do was make McKinsey a non-consultant. We were fortunate to get an article in Fortune magazine around 1982 or three. When you say fortunate, I'm guessing you never were in Fortune before that. We we were in Fortune, but we were mentioned. Okay. Um, um, You know, uh, and and we were mentioned, for example, in an article about BCG that said. BCG is stealing McKinsey's lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got the big new ad- ideas on it, the experience curve and the four-box matrix. Where's McKinsey's ideas? You know, McKinsey's idea was a nine-box matrix. Well, that isn't going to do it. 
you know. So um, uh, my friend Walter Kieschel was over there. We'd gone to Harvard Business School together. And he was a smart guy. He was also a Harvard College Midwest guy. And he said, I want to do a story on McKinsey. Uh, you know, and, uh, you can't tell me what to write, but you've got to give me access. So I trust him. And he came back with an article called Corporate Strategist Under Fire. And basically it said, McKinsey has come storming back with a host of new ideas, leaving BCG behind. And most important, it has a tremendous client relationships. Everybody loved the article. Mm-hmm. And in particular, they loved this illustration of all these boxers in a ring, mm-hmm. Booth, Bain, BCG, McKinsey. In the middle of the ring, there was McKinsey, twice as big as every other boxer. Mm-hmm. You know, it had vanquished its competition. You know, people wanted... Um, copies of the uh, the uh, picture and all that sort of stuff. But if you read the article carefully, it really was saying that consulting is not so good. It's a bunch of ideas. Mm-hmm. It's guys selling those ideas. Because we were getting into that era yeah. after In Search of Excellence where, you know, there was one idea after another and not many of them were good. It wasn't, oh my, examining trade and what's going on in the world. It was people, you know, with theory theory that, you know, wasn't even as good as the theory that was in, in Search of Excellence, mm-hmm. and that was a very good theory, you know. Um, so I went to Ron Daniel, managing partner. I said, Ron, did you really read that article? He said, yeah, it was okay. Well, you know, we came out on top. I said, yeah, but that ring of consultants is a ring of thugs. Mm-hmm. A good choice and, of words. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, it, it landed on him. Uh, but he gave me that look that, you know, managing partners give young new partners, yeah. which was, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. <laughs> he said, well, go do something about it and let me know. Because that's the kind of wonderful relationship I had with him. You know, now, He was nominally my boss, but he treated me like a partner who was going to do and uh, did it. You know? So I started asking him, I said, what makes McKinsey the, the best and the greatest? And I'd get answers like, we're the preeminent management consulting firm. And I would say, well, that, that just makes us the biggest thug in the ring, mm-hmm. you know. Finally, my buddy Carter Bales and a couple of others, a New York partner who's running recruiting, said to me, Bill, we are a leadership factory. And I just stopped me in my tracks. I said, what do you you mean by that? He said, we produce more CEOs than any other institution in the world. And we produce more young, you know, managers Mm -hmm. on the the rise to that. I said, can you prove that? And he had the numbers. And we already had the mm-hmm, McKinsey mm-hmm. alumni director, you know, the network. Yeah. And we did have a lot of alumni out there, uh, just by force of our position. And they, they graduated from McKinsey onto these positions. And we didn't ask. Carter and I and a few other people hatched up this plan to take McKinsey out of the boxing ring, out of the consultant quadrant of management, mm-hmm. and just make it unique. And we did it. You know, looking back, it looks like we knew what we were doing, yeah. and, and maybe maybe we did, uh, but we did three things. Since Carter was running recruiting, we wrote a new recruiting speech, and we made it very clear to people they needed to deliver it or they wouldn't be back on campus. And the recruiting speech never mentioned the word partner. Never. We said, you, you go up there and talk about coming to McKinsey and becoming a partner. You're fired. We don't want you representing McKinsey. And this is where, you know, we did have to get tough with Germany. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to get tough with Chicago mm-hmm. or Los Angeles, any, any place, you know, because partnership was what they were selling. Yeah. But the fact is, you know, seven out of eight guys were coming to McKinsey. They weren't becoming partners. Yeah. They were leaving. They were going on to great positions. The second thing we did is we really beefed up the alumni network. And this didn't take a lot of work because it was already strong. But we made sure that any partner who left McKinsey had seven job offers. We just said, that's the number. Don't ask us why that's the number. That's the number, you know. And we just, we really invested in, in alumni relationships, mm-hmm. alumni relations. I took it over as part of marketing. You know, why? Yes. Because it is part of marketing. Um, we hired some really good people into the position, and we really started working our alumni in the sense of saying, so-and-so has decided to leave McKinsey, you know. Here, he's terrific, she's terrific, et cetera. And then the third thing was we really started to go down to the Wall Street Journal more often. We kept writing for the Harvard Business Review, but Harvard Business Review is where the thugs write. Right? Mm-hmm. They don't write for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they don't write for the Financial Times. Um, and and we, you know, as I said, Omai published 37 editorials all of his own. Mm-hmm. He went on to the editorial board of the Asian Wall Street Journal, had 
Bob Bartley's request. Um, and the Wall Street Journal was was a new forum for us where we didn't sound like consultants. We sounded like people who knew some issues where it was appropriate for us to comment. Yes. Now these weren't issues, these were not social issues. We weren't writing about abortion or sure. something like that. You know, we were writing about trade. We were writing about uh, integration and whether it makes sense in the energy business or in the banking business. Uh, and it uh, it made a big difference. So those those three things that you know. The new recruiting speech, the alumni network, and the Wall Street Journal together added up to McKinsey being a unique institution. So much so that two years later in Fortune, there was a cover story. And the headline was something like, who produces more CEOs, GE or McKinsey? It's actually an old article. Yeah. And I don't, I don't even remember who won, you know, but it didn't matter. Because that was a different boxing ring. It had GE in it, IBM, McKinsey. But it changed the you know, conversation. It changed the conversation. Now, I think, you know, in the late 90s, I think with Gupta at the helm mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the firm getting bigger and I was gone by that point, uh, we slipped back into the consulting ring. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's hard to stay unique, you know. But as Mike Porter says, strategy is not about being the best. It's about being unique. Um, and he had it, and McKinsey had it there for a while. Anyhow, I'm going on. No, I think it's amazing. I mean, what surprises me in a good way is that a lot of the stories you talk about, they almost craft the culture of McKinsey, which is, you know, why McKinsey is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things you read about in journals and, you know, all these books about McKinsey, they almost have a very superficial interpretation of what makes McKinsey McKinsey. Yeah. They talk about the yeah. toolkits, the methodologies, the training. This, I would, that's not the soul of the company, right? No, it's not. Um, and I thought this last book on McKinsey, what was it called? The Firm? Or, oh, there's so many of them. Yeah, it, it missed it as well. Um, it's hard to capture it. I mean, you had to, you know, I hate to say it, you had to be there. Um, and we, I think we were all aware that when Marvin Bauer mm -hmm. died, uh, it was going to be high, it was going to be very hard to keep that culture um, because he embodied it. I mean, he literally embodied it with every training program. He was. I was very fortunate to have him as a friend. Yeah. He. I spent a lot of time with Marvin and, and you know visited him when he was growing very old in Florida and you know helping him write a book and, and then telling him not to publish his last book, uh, which hurt him. But you know I was trying to preserve his reputation. But that's that's the way we were. We were, we were friends as well as partners. So you talk about the influence Marvin Bauer had on McKinsey. And, and one, yeah. of, one of the things I always tell people to do is if you want to understand McKinsey, go and read Marvin's old pieces. Yes, it's a great idea. But uh, I think the new generation is, and I'm generalizing obviously, but I do think to a large extent, a lot of people see consulting firms just like banks as a route to extravagant riches somewhere down their lifetime. Are there mm -hmm. examples of how of the little things Marvin did that made that preserved McKinsey's culture or enhanced it? Maybe is a better word. Um, yes, there are examples of what Marvin did. He, for example, he would take every new associate to lunch in New York and other offices when he visited, and he visited other offices all the time. But when he'd take them to lunch, he'd watch them order lunch, and then he would point out that if they ordered from the a la carte side mm -hmm. of the menu, it's more expensive than if they ordered the price fee lunch. You know? yes. and, and associates never walked out of lunch without noticing that Marvin paid attention to cost. So it's the blue plate special it was called then, right? Yeah, the blue plate special. Which we, don't have, which we no longer have these days. No, and, uh, and and the other thing he did is he wouldn't fly he wouldn't fly business class or in, in our days it was you know it was either first or coach. Yeah. Marvin flew coach. Uh, he even flew coach on partner conferences. You know you'd get on the plane and you're walking up. You remember you used to sometimes have to walk through coach to get the first yeah, class. Yeah, I remember that. Flight. You'd pass Marvin sitting there with his wife. And how do you think you felt? <laughs> yeah, that was Marvin though. But it was it was more than that. He just he stressed the you know the idea that we serve our clients first, second, and third, and then we serve the firm, and the individual comes 
sixth or seventh. Uh, and he did it in a way that didn't mean individuals weren't really important to McKinsey. You know, he saw each individual as an embodiment of McKinsey, just as he was. But uh, he just, and he was always fundamental. He was always sound. I, one day, I, I, I took care of all the policies, particularly policies having to do with marketing. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody pointed out we didn't have a policy on giving speeches. And my first reaction was, we don't need a policy on giving speeches. Yeah. Figure it out. But I kept getting the request. And so finally I wrote this policy on speeches. And it was, uh, it was stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, you know, you know, it was all about how important McKinsey was. So don't, don't accept speeches that, uh, you know, aren't, aren't important. Yeah. Enough. And I took it in Marvin. I said, hey Marvin, would you give us a quick look? And he looked down at it. He was probably about 83, 84 at the time. And I could just see him looking at it, and then he looks up at me, and he's got this high-pitched, squeaky old voice. And he says, "Bill, this is this is fine, except maybe you ought to point out at the beginning that the first thing to consider is whether you have anything to say." <laughs> A very obvious point in Einstein. <laughs> I, you know, and I just picked up the policy and said, "Thanks, Marvin." Walked out of the room, muttering to myself, "You know, what a fool you are, Bill." You know, of course that's the thing to ask. And ask it two or three times, you know. But don't ask it in the sense of, is the audience important enough for you? you know, ask it in the sense of, what do you have to say to these people that they'll remember that will be helpful to them? Then you can consider, you know, can you do it, et cetera. That's Marvin. And those are the kind of examples. There were thousands of them. Uh, so know, basically, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't principles. It was the little actions. Yeah. Which, which sort of well, you snowballed know, he, into principles, I suppose. Right. You know, and he never let me use the word marketing, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, it was always building the reputation of McKinsey. Marketing just struck him as unprofessional. Mm, which I agree with. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you see what's going on today, you know. In any case, he was he was just, um, and it, it permeated that whole generation of partners that we had then, those guys that were half generation ahead of me and. And the ones that were behind me, it was a great environment for me. And you know, McKinsey was truly my home. Look, you've raised so many interesting things that I feel a little bit like it's Christmas time for me. So mm-hmm. I'm going to just open the big boxes first, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Okay. So you, you had some other questions. Feel free. Oh, uh, don't worry, but I think we're going in the right direction here. I, I want to come back to your. If you talked about marketing, which let's not use that word. I, I agree, it's a terrible word. It seems to me that you were the custodian of McKinsey's image rather than being, well, I wouldn't even say custodian, but, but rather you were helping the people who could craft McKinsey's image and helping them do that in a better way. Is that a good way to define your role? Uh, custodian. Well, well, I wouldn't say custodian, good, guys. Well, in a sense, you know, when I got to McKinsey in 1982, mm-hmm. 1980, excuse me, it was it was already a powerful institution. Yes. And I said to myself, my first job is to protect that image and brand. I couldn't use the word brand because, you know, that was clearly out of bounds mm-hmm. <laughs> from our yeah. uh, and others. Um, but I, I, But you're right about there was a need to protect the brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and McKinsey's reputation. At the same time, though, there was BCG and Bain out there scurrying around, developing a reputation for being faster, quicker, mm-hmm. and smarter. So you couldn't just protect. You needed to do something. And and uh, but I didn't want to do anything silly, and I didn't want to do anything me too. Absolutely. I mean, you know, a, a nine box matrix versus yeah. a four box matrix. Give me a break. That's not going to change our standing. Um, and, and that's why we evolved that strategy of getting out of the boxing ring uh, and doing something unique and really believing in and executing the idea that we were a leadership factory. It wasn't just a phrase. You know, we were truly generating more CEOs than any other institution in the United States, with a possible exception of GE and IBM. And it sounds like there was no you know, grand vision of how to do this. It was more like a trial and error of yeah. getting out your message and being authentic, right? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, you know, it, uh, that's why I said it, it's wisdom in retrospect. Yeah. You know, I, but I do remember, and it was it was happenstance. You know, Carter, who's a good buddy of mine, 
in the New York office happened to be running recruiting. So I'm sitting there saying, Carter, how do we how do we show the world that we're unique? He, he came up with it. He doesn't even remember it. I remind him he was the author of that phrase. Um, but you're right. It's I think strategy evolves out of conversations with you know the leadership of your firm. You know, so whatever the size of your consulting firm, the strategy evolves from those discussions. But then you do have to take actions and see if they work. Um, you know, you, you, you know, we did make that commitment with the alumni network to provide everybody with multiple job offers, mm-hmm. and we executed. Um, so it's um, it's a little bit of that phrase from In Search of Excellence: Do it, try it, fix it. You know. Um, and 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 the key thing I think was they worked t- together. The new recruiting pitch, the Wall Street Journal editorials, the the you know, the, the ever expanding secret list of CEOs that McKinsey produced. Because you know, we never published that. Yes. List. We wouldn't even give it to, to Fortune when they were doing the story. I think I think maybe I slipped it under the mm-hmm. table. It's, you know, it was it was deliberately written in pencil yeah. or something. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, the silly things you do. But uh, uh, it, it was those things added up to something. I, I think if you're in a consulting firm and you truly, you know, have an idea of how to reposition yourself, then you got to sort of take some actions, see whether they work, double down on them. So at that time, you, you, uh, you had, I would say, maybe influenced a generation of partners from the 80s, 90s, and all the way to 2010, right? You mentioned... Well, I don't- Go ahead. Well, you obviously left McKinsey and went to BCG at a certain point. Yeah, I didn't go to BCG directly, but in 1999, I left McKinsey. Okay, so 1999, you left McKinsey, and then you went to a uh, to sell a firm, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, a firm called Mitchell Madison. I left McKinsey to join Mitchell Madison. Tom Steiner, another of my great colleagues mm-hmm. at McKinsey. You know, I'd written a book called Banking and Technology. Mm-hmm. I gave him the subtitle, which was creating value, destroying profits, because um, all the banks were, you know, yes. investing heavily in technology, but no one getting competitive advantage mm-hmm. from it. Um, they had started a firm called Mitchell Madison. Mm-hmm. Tom called me and said, you know, I hear you're leaving McKinsey. Um, I said, yep. Um, he said, join us. And I said, why? He said, well, because truth be told, we just hit about 200 million in revenues. The partners aren't getting along. Mm-hmm. We're not keeping our competitive position. We're losing our bright young people. Mm-hmm. Help us sell this place. I said, I've never done that before. He said, it doesn't matter. You'll figure it out. Kind of like Ron Daniel mm-hmm. 20 years earlier. Yeah. You know? So I, I, you know, I literally walked across the street to Mitchell Madison, and the very first thing was a meeting with Donaldson, Lumpkin, Generet, yeah. discussing how we were going to sell Mitchell Madison. And, uh, uh, and and they didn't get it, of course. It's just like any, you know, trying to figure out what McKinsey's like. They, they didn't really understand what yeah. Mitchell was about. But we managed to sell the firm over the course of a year and a half or so. We managed to sell it for almost, well, two and a half times revenue. It's close to three. And, you know, that's... That's quite significant. That, that's pretty good. Um, but I almost see a pattern here. I mean, you take things that you haven't really been trying to get sort of come to you and you make it work. For example, you went into McKinsey, right? Yeah. They came to you. Uh, you know, the, 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 the age-old argument is that only someone who's steeped in McKinsey's value should be you know, guiding our positioning amongst clients. But you came in, uh, and and obviously did a pretty good job. Do you, do you think that, that gave you some kind of advantage not being weighed down with some of the older thinking? Um I think you do have an advantage of, of uh, not being weighed down when you come in from the outside. But at the same time, you've got to truly understand where people are coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you, you've got to, um, for example, when I joined McKinsey, I read Marvin's book, Perspective, mm-hmm. which was distributed only to partners. Mm-hmm. At least twice, if not three times. Mm-hmm. I, re- I read it and respected it so much, I, a- I had to ask myself whether I was good enough to be joining a place like we mm-hmm. So, yes, you have to be willing to forget the past, but at the same time, you better understand it and you better respect it. Mm-hmm. 
And believe me, I respected it more than most of the older partners. I knew what its essence was. And I also really worked hard at understanding their their current trove of intellectual capital. Mm-hmm. Again, Carter Bale said to me, do you really want this job? And I said, you know, when I was coming up for the interview, and he said, I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, here are the current staff papers of the firm. There are 12 of them. Imagine, you know, all of McKinsey's knowledge and 12 staff papers. And I took them and I read every one of them. And, you you know, you can't walk into a room and not really get where the place is coming from. Yes. But then at the same time, you need to figure out how you're going to leverage that, do a little jujitsu, and move on to something else. Move on to that mm-hmm. leadership factory idea. And the leadership factory idea was just around the corner from McKinsey. You know, they all already had a strong alumni network. Uh, so it's, it's a matter of, you know, you can't come in and be a bull in a China shop. I'm not that kind sure. of person. But uh, you, you do need to leverage the fact that you are new. It, it, the, the analogy that comes to mind is a person who is growing up, you're, you're still the same person, but you've got to adjust to the changing culture, mood, and so on. But you've got to preserve yeah. your personality. Yeah, you do. Exactly. You know, there was still the coal miner kid yeah. in me. Um, but, you know, I, I recognized coal miner kids and others. You know, McKinsey, there were a lot of people there who shared my sort of awe of the place and what we had accomplished. Uh, but at the same time, they were, they realized that they were going to create the future. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, and I think the same thing with Mitchell Madison when I got over there is, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta figure out what, what, what is it that made this company, this juggernaut, got to 200 million in four years. Mm-hmm. And what's, yeah. what's now killing, what's now killing it, you know? And how do we, how do we get there? And you, you find, in this case, three or four players, again, who, how we were going to position Mitchell Madison and, uh, and, and make it an effective pitch, which we did. And, uh, you know, it worked out great. Well, it worked out until the whole, we sold it to a, a uh, West Coast, mm-hmm. you know, firm that was going to, they were going to marry strategy consulting, communications consulting, and IT. Oh, wow. All under, all under one roof. Now, Sounds like a spaghetti combination. Yeah, you got to be really naive and stupid mm-hmm. to think you're going to do something like that. But, you know, there were people who believed it, and they paid what they paid. There are still people that believe that, by the way. So. Yes. Oh, yeah, this, this idea, well, it's, let's do this and this, mm-hmm. and, you know, not at the firm level, at the value proposition level. But it's hard, it's hard to get people with very different disciplines and way of thinking to be an effective consulting team. Absolutely. So I have one more question about McKinsey, and then I want to talk about the transition to BCG. Uh, yeah. You made a comment earlier, and if you want, we can you know, elaborate on that a little bit. You talked about how McKinsey uh, seems to be slipping back into that consulting ring. I mean, what would be the signals that you would see of that? Um, the signals to me are, you know, what, what, where is the uniqueness? Where mm-hmm. is the distinctiveness for McKinsey today? Uh, when you pick up a McKinsey quarterly, does it thrill you? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, what, 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 what have they done recently? You know, is there a new version of the McKinsey Global Institute, which mm-hmm. we, we've put together in the late 80s? Um, is its size just making it so much of a behemoth mm-hmm. that um, it, it can't be distinctive? Now, I, I don't think that's the case, and I think the, the recent managing partners um, have uh, have have understood this and are are certainly in, in several ways trying to take the firm back mm-hmm. to Marvin's values and principles. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it needs to, and, and it's, I guess they're trying to go forward by, you know, playing around at Davos. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and... So experimenting to see what works. Yeah, but, you know, playing around at Davos, to me, is playing around. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not, you know, that organization has become a parody of itself. Uh, yes, it's too big. And, too big and, and certainly so important. Um, and, and what are they really doing, mm-hmm. you know, um, what are they accomplishing? 
you know, Mackenzie sort of, you know, I, I must admit, I'm, I'm out of touch with them now. Sure. But, I, but I would look at, you know, distinctiveness mm-hmm. to say what, what's truly distinctive here. So again, the, the, the heart of strategy. Yeah, yeah, and, and as you said, you know, that strategy will come out of somewhere, and we'll get crafted together and then executed. Okay, so let's move into BCG, right? I mean. So you, you joined McKinsey at a time when the, the cl- clients and McKinsey felt BCG was having more of an impact. You go full circle and then you, you end up at BCG. And how, how did that happen? Did they come to you? Did, what, what was the sequence of events? Um, they heard I was leaving. I'm trying to remember and tell you the truth. Um, it's okay. You can just they, the highlight. They, they, they somehow knew that... Uh, uh, I was leaving mm-hmm. McKinsey because word got out that Rajat Gupta and I were not getting mm-hmm. along. And, uh, you know, if you don't get along with a managing partner, Absolutely. you've got to be prepared to leave. And, you know, I became prepared to leave. And uh, and I was stale. Anybody who thinks they can be in a position for 20 years yeah. and not be stale, even though I had, you know, each year, there were three or four eras yeah. where you know, at first it was external communications. Then I took over knowledge management and all of our internal communications. Then alumni, then competitive analysis. You know, so my job kept getting bigger and bigger. I'm, you know, 50 people or so doing it, doing this stuff. And uh, but I was stale, so it it was time for me to leave. Um, and with Rajat at the helm, I realized I should leave. Um, and I think it was George Stock and I who got together because I okay. always respected George. Mm-hmm. He's a really good thinker. He is, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we met in Toronto. He said, "Do you have an interest in joining us?" I said, "Yeah," you know. But then I went off and I joined Mitchell Madison. And then, uh, then when we accomplished the sale, it was time for me to go because these guys were not serious sure. about building knowledge, mm-hmm. serving clients, doing whatever. It was a, it was an act. Um, and. I got, I, I sent a note to George saying, I'm selling my stock, you know, you want to talk again? And he got right back. And before mm-hmm. I knew it, I was meeting with uh, Carl Stern, George, and uh, the managing partner to be, Hans Paul Berkner in Chicago. And we quickly decided I would join BCG as a partner and work with George uh, on what BCG called. Uh, the IMC, uh, Innovation, Marketing, and Communications. Mm-hmm. And I joined BCG and liked the the, uh, the work, the, the, uh, the thinking, because it was very strong. Uh, BCG had a much stronger microeconomic underpinning mm-hmm. to it than work for clients. Um, and, uh, and and it truly served the companies, not just the CEOs. Yes. You know, I once I once said to Ron Daniel, Ron, does McKinsey serve the CEO or does it serve the company? And he said, I'm not answering that question. I, said, Why so not? I think he's already answered the question. Yeah, he did in, in his answer. You know, McKinsey serves CEOs, uh, and and quite successfully. If you're going to be a leadership factor, what the hell mm-hmm. else are you going to do? BCG mm-hmm. um, served the company. Uh, the the CEO was, you know. Not not exact not a necessary evil, but certainly not you know nobody bowed down to him. Uh, you know, even the guy paying the bills. I mean, BCG was there to find the truth, mm-hmm. the microeconomic truth, the strategic truth. Mm-hmm. They took great pride in that. And, and guys like George Stock, just just phenomenal, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and great fun as partners too. I mean, we, again, we became partners, and I did the same thing that I did in McKinsey. I did. BCG, I think, did want me to manage the function globally because they thought that's what I did at McKinsey. And I kept trying to tell them, look, no, I've got to find 10 guys from around the world, and we're going to do great new things together, which is what we began to do. I mean, there were some tremendous people, tremendous thinkers. But there was this, George had built too big an organization. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I did was cut 30 people out of the IMC staff. And it was the appropriate time to do it because the economics, sure. world economics, were not very good. So when you, say, when you say George, was he sort of the custodian or the partner sponsoring this initiative before you came in? Before I came in, okay, yes. Got it. He was head of the IMC, mm-hmm. uh, with Carl being his, you know, sure. the managing partner and behind him. Uh, I came in totally as an equal mm-hmm. in the sense of, uh, you know, George and I are going to co-run this. Yeah, makes sense. And then pretty much I took it over. 
George did more client work. So he was still my comrade, you know, my buddy and all this stuff. Um, so, um, you know, and 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 uh, you know, I learned we we learned from each other because he I think he had some real good ideas about how to in fact make sure that innovation in thinking got fed into marketing mm-hmm. and then got fed into communications. That was the whole idea. And they learned from me. You know, for example, I said to Carl once, I said, "How do you think you grow knowledge?" Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, you get these practice groups together and they toss around ideas and you know and they put them down on paper." And I said, "Nope, it's not how you do it." You do it by getting one of these consultants five exposures to the same problem. You know, so if you want, for example, to really advance pricing innovation, great topic, you know, uh, pricing innovation, you need to take that guy, that young partner, or maybe mm-hmm. not even a partner, that's doing that work down in Delta, take him out of Atlanta for his next assignment, mm-hmm. and make him do pricing innovation for a client on the West Coast or a client in Germany. And Carl looked at me and said, that's not easy, you know, because mm-hmm. Atlanta's a little fiefdom. This guy's part of the office economics, um, you know, and he may not want to do it because he's got family, etc. Sure. Carl, the only way you build knowledge is by exposing one of these guys in the furnace of a client engagement to the same problem. Because then within five engagements, he's better than any professor who studied it for 20 years. And any consultant who's done it one and a half times, yeah. trading ideas with somebody else, you know. And he had to admit that's that's the that's the reality. So we began that task of having more influence over um, the development of people. In, in other words, innovative ideas cannot be separated for developing people yes. and careers. Um, uh, but but it's a difficult one. So, but then the, the nature of practice meetings became. You know, I, I went to my first practice mm-hmm. meeting at BCG, and the whole the whole agenda was about budget. <laughs> and I said, Jesus Christ, you barely even showed any ideas at this practice mm-hmm. meeting. Uh, and it's all about revenue numbers, et cetera, and how much the you know the energy yeah. practice is bringing into BCG. And I said, Geez. I said, on the agenda, first, foremost, and last should be who are the ten young people in the practice mm-hmm. who are leading new idea development. And what are their assignments right now? And where do we need to engage them next? And that was that's a big change in the agenda. I'm not sure that I succeeded in doing that mm-hmm. because Carl Carl decided not to run for managing partner. Hans Paul took mm-hmm. over, and you know Hans Paul and I sort of saw eye to eye, but yeah. not really. Um, and, and you know, and eventually I left BCG after five and a half, six years. But that was the idea, you know, of, of sort of. You know, let's go back to fundamentals and let's fundamentally then change how we grow these ideas. Um, I would say as much as I respected BCG in terms of, you know, serving mm-hmm. the institution, finding the truth, rigorous mm-hmm. thinking, really solid people, mm-hmm. um, they had made one major error in the construction of the firm and how it works, mm-hmm. and that was in their personnel committees and how they evaluated and compensated people. Uh, I said, B- BCG is a culture of credit, mm-hmm. and McKinsey is a culture of contribution. Um, and the way that happened is that at McKinsey, personnel committees would go around, and these are the best people yeah. in the firm, evaluate every partner, every senior partner. And eventually got the point under Ron Daniel, revenue was barely barely mentioned in those evaluations. It was, what's the quality of the relationship with the client? You know, mm-hmm. what does the CEO think of us? Uh, have we brought the right people into the engagement? You know, if you're serving Siemens in Germany, is it the entire German office, or are they, in fact, bringing in good people from around the world uh, on the right engagements, et cetera? Uh, that's a culture of contribution, and it's, it's not neat. It could be perverted. Mm-hmm. But McKenzie put its best people on it. It adhered to Marvin's um, first principle, which was we are a meritocracy, and all that's all that matters. It's also uh, making the point that profit is an outcome out of doing the right things, but not the right. Goal. And, that's, and guess how many times Marvin said that? You know, you're absolutely right. Profit is an outcome. And now, transfer to BCG. Bruce Henderson. Mm-hmm. 
I remember seeing Bruce on videotape for the first time. Yeah. And it almost knocked me off my feet because inevitably I was comparing Bruce with Margaret yeah. Bauer. Both of them were men of vision. Bruce was an engineer, mm-hmm. you know. Marvin was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce was the guy who was going to, you know, drive this firm based on fact and microeconomics. And he didn't trust this idea of a personnel system where people were making judgments. So it was all going to be for him about revenues and numbers. That way it couldn't be perverted. And he made that choice. And it might have made sense to him, but it made BCG a culture of credit. And, you know, and a culture of gaming the various ways revenue and credit got assigned. So it was no less political in McKinsey's. And in fact, McKinsey's, I think, was less political mm-hmm. because Marvin's values still adhered and meritocracy mattered. And as you said, profit is an outcome. Um, that really hurt BCG because when you're talking about taking that kid out of Atlanta, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a numbers game. Right? It's a numbers game. The Atlanta office manager says, I'm sorry, man, that's going to hurt our office. How are you going to compensate me for that? And then you have, you know, three hours of discussion about rejiggering the numbers versus what's the right assignment for this guy now? You know, and how do we give him a platform for, uh, for developing his ideas and make sure that he's successful? Uh, you don't have that discussion. You have this number about the numbers. You have this discussion about the numbers. So, you know, I think in my final memo on marketing to BCG, I said, look, you know, as long as BCG is a culture of credit, it mm-hmm. will be second. It will be second to McKinsey. And do you feel the culture is still there? Uh, I do, although I don't know now. It's, it's, it's definitely different. evolving, but it, it's it's a big part of their culture. Yes, yes. Now, Rich Lesser, the new managing mm-hmm. partner, um, is a guy, I think he's got lots of potential to at least redirect McKenzie toward more attention to the relationships mm-hmm. it has with clients, you know. Um, and and he'll do it in a way that, that won't stretch BCG too far from its origins. Um, but he did a brilliant job um, managing the Pfizer team by really paying attention to relationships um, at Pfizer, you know. What exactly, with, with, with whom do we have good relations? What are we talking about with them? What are we doing for them? Do they appreciate our value? Um, can we deliver more value? And to the point where Rich successfully pushed McKenzie out of Pfizer. Um, he's now running BCG, and I think he's got the right blend of credit and contribution. Um, you know, at least I would bet on mm-hmm. Besides the fact that he's a Pittsburgh boy and he <laughs> Steelers, you know. No, there, there, there's absolutely no bias. No, none whatsoever. <laughs> and I talk to him on occasion. Okay. I, I have a lot of respect for him. And I think, uh, you know, eventually, you know, sometimes you get managing partners who push the firm in one direction or another, but the firm itself, if it's big enough, McKinsey, BCG, it will find its course. Yeah. You know? And I think BCG is finding its course. But the, the way you... you... You know, if you had to think about the way you explained what makes a professional, a partnership successful, mm-hmm. I'm going to use a rough analogy here, but it's almost as if every tangible advantage a firm has, like its intellectual property, its methodologies, its skills, they're only as good as how you're going to use them and why you're going to use them. Because if you have the best technical skills, but the, and you use it with the wrong intent, you still cause a lot of trouble for the firm. I'm not sure I'm following this. Restate that. Just so, so, so what I'm saying is that um, if, if you had a company that took all of McKinsey's hard skills capabilities, all its research, all its knowledge, all the databases, all the benchmarks and so on, right? Yeah. But if it wasn't using those skills with the right intention to serve a client well, in time, it wouldn't matter if you have all of those hard skills because clients still wouldn't want to work with you. Uh, I, I think you, you're absolutely correct. Um, it, 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 if you take all those technical mm-hmm. skills 
and you know papers. Um, you know, no, those twelve staff papers. hundreds of millions of dollars spent on these things, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's not like it's not that they are without value. Sure. They are they are of course of tremendous value, but if the chemistry of the the partners who are going to take that stuff and do something with it for clients isn't right. You know, where, where's that higher mission for the firm? Uh, or if the chemistry with the client isn't right, uh, none of that stuff matters. You're a technical firm. I mean, that's that's really what happened with Mitchell Madison. And worse is the uh, the young people who were developing, you know, specialized knowledge about sourcing in one area or one industry. We're all getting hired away. Uh, you, you sort of, you know, that competitive advantage is quite ephemeral. Knowledge changes, technology changes. Um, uh, it's it's really that higher mission, and of course, for for McKinsey, it was you know superb work for clients. Yeah, if you're to be philosophical, it's almost what is your purpose in life? Yeah, exactly right. And and, and I think uh, both firms, BCG mm -hmm. and McKinsey, did, did have that higher purpose in different ways. You know, uh, for McKinsey, it was much more of a human thing. It was a relationship thing. For BCG, it was changing the world. Yeah, let's rock the world a little bit here. We're um, we're coming to an hour mark. Are you fine if I just ask you a few more questions? No, it's fine. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. So, let's talk about your current work. Um, you you run a, a firm now, advising on similar to the work you did at BCG and McKinsey, right? Yeah. And and you know who, who what what what's the kind of ethos of the of the firm? You know what is the kind of work you are doing and so on. You know, the ethos of the firm is still uh, of the, uh, my new firm, the Glasshouse Group, uh, is, is still pretty much how do I, do these people have a chance to reposition themselves, to deliver more value, to attract more talent? Um, if they do, then I'm interested in the assignment. And, and But I'm real interested if I gauge that their willingness to change is very high because Repositioning yourself is one of the scariest things in the world. Yes. You know, Jeannie Duck, a wonderful partner at BCG, mm -hmm. wrote a book called The Change Monster. And she said, You go up this, you know, that, that roller coaster, and you think you're going up, and then you know, click, 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 and you get to the top, and you're all ready to go down and make this big change, and then you back down. Um, and it's real hard to have the courage to reposition yourself. But I would say my I'm looking for those assignments where I can take people out of the boxing ring uh, and, and find solid new positions. It's 10 o'clock. You know, and I'll give you an example with uh, with Tapestry, a firm I've been working mm -hmm. with in the Boston area, uh, who works all over the world. They have been doing, they had been doing tremendous work. I, w I would call them super facilitators. Um, they get people in the room, mostly peers, for example, the heads of the audit committees of major boards of major companies, or the non-executive chairman of those boards, they get them in the room and they talk about best practice, and they talk about, you know, the toughest mm -hmm. problem, and they pre-brief and they debrief and send out very dense papers, and the people who come to these meetings, which repeat themselves twice a year, if not longer, usually at dinner, et cetera, uh, and then an all-day briefing the next day. And they, they talk a lot. Tapestry doesn't talk that much. They facilitate. It works. It's a great product, you know, and big professional mm -hmm. firms, people, people who attend the meetings don't. It sounds like an early version of Davos. Yeah, and, 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 but it's it's more, um, yeah, it is. And But you have one big sponsor, mm -hmm. like Ian White. Ian is a very big sponsor. And it published. I'm not telling you secrets. They, they, you know, that's published. You know, I was quite happy because they're they're seeing what's on the minds mm -hmm. of the, the chairman of audit committees. You know, and that's that's invaluable mm -hmm. knowledge. They're building their relationships, yeah. etc. But then one of the chairs of those audit committees, who ran a pharmaceutical company in Europe, his real job, said to the head of the firm. We have a big problem in Europe. We get these drugs all the way through to approval with the European Medicines Agency. But then the drugs, even after approved, need to be bought by the buying agencies in Germany, in France, in Italy, 
because that's the way the German healthcare system, I mean, that's the way the European healthcare mm-hmm. system And those buying agents say, I'm glad the drug's approved. I'm glad you spent a billion dollars developing it. But it's 10 times as expensive as the old drug, and I don't see quite 10 times the benefit. Therefore, I'm not buying it. No, you know, that's not very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this guy said, can Tapestry help us? And the, the guy running the firm said, I don't know. And, but long and short, Tapestry did help them. This time they didn't get peers in the room. Mm-hmm. They got enemies in the room. Mm-hmm. Even better intelligence. What's that? Even better information. Better information. And it took a year just to get him in the room, you know. Yes. Uh, but then they developed a, um, a new framework for evaluating drugs. Uh, and people agreed the information that would be needed for that framework. And then they piloted three or four drugs using that framework and said, would this drug get an early go or an early no? So you might save mm-hmm. $500 million on developing the drug. And all that worked. You know, they made something happen to the point now where Europe is gradually adopting this new approach to drug development. And God knows when you new mm-hmm. approach to drug development. You know, there, there yeah. are three drugs for Alzheimer's disease in the American system right now. 113 have been turned down. Same problem. To the point where drug companies aren't even investing in the drug. That's a problem. It's not a problem that McKinsey can solve because it serves one client at a time. It's not a problem that Davos can solve because all they do there is, is get together and talk. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, they don't work the problem. It's advertising. Right? Yeah. What pardon me? It's basically a place to be seen. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I said to George Goldsmith, who was was who heads this firm, I said and found it, I said, Look, this, this is very different work than what you were doing. Uh, do you guys have the courage to do this second kind of work? And how are you going to expand that and sell it? What kind of people will you, will you need to bring in to do it? Because it, it's really you know a combination of system mm-hmm. dynamics, scenario planning, still heavy facilitation, mm-hmm. but now with enemies rather than peers. You know, it's not late night cognacs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's active experimentation. And I said, you know, are you ready to move the firm from left to right? That was my repositioning for that, you know. Um, and, and I reminded him of Donald Schoen's brilliant definition of strategy, which is the active, synthetic skill of imagining the future and inventing ways of bringing it about. And I said, that's what tapestry needs to aspire to be able to do. And we developed a new positioning for the firm and... Uh, and you know, if you go to the website, you could see it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, it's been it, that's the kind of work I want to do. You know, is, is, uh, is thinking about how to reposition um, these companies, and it can be done in all of them. I had a great conversation the other day with a guy who runs a fifty million dollar public relations mm-hmm. lobby firm in Washington, and we talked about what he really wants to do in its public strategy. And you know, I need to unpack that phrase for you, but it's—I uh, don't know—I don't—I won't do that now. But it's repositioning professional service firms is a lot of fun, mm-hmm. but it's also intellectually, you know, and it's using a lot of those old concepts yes. from spatial strategy. Mm-hmm. Remember spatial strategy? You know, it's, it, it was a very good discipline, uh, and you got to figure out the spaces and, and the dimensions of the space. You know what are the and dimensions are really buying factors, yeah, and relationship factors. You know, um, and, and it, you go back to tapestry. You know, the dimensions are very different from the first type of work and the second type of work. Um, uh, in any case, you know that's fun work, and that's about the only work I'm doing because none of the, the other stuff is interesting, and I've made enough money, and mm-hmm. I want to relax. But I'll, I like. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I, but I like the intellectual challenge. And I, but I'll tell you, it's it's hard work. Once you sort of get the the positioning right or the new positioning right, that's a third of the game. In getting the people strategy right, and, and and figuring out how you in fact do need that technical yeah. base you talked about, and, but marry that to the larger mission, you know, so that it gets in the proposal the right way, you know. Um, uh, that's really hard, uh, you know, because you, you are going to have to probably get rid of some current partners. You're ready to do that. And it's very easy you know, to also part- drift, right? Pardon me? It's also very easy to actually drift off what you plan to do. Yes, 
Yes. Because this is so intangible. Sometimes you don't even know you've drifted. No, you don't don't know you're drifted. And the client comes back and says, you know, let's just have one of these dinners because we're we're paying for it. And and, uh, you guys know how to do it. You can do it Mm -hmm. in your sleep. Um, And so somebody comes along and says, well, what if we had that dinner? But, but, you know, we introduced some scenario planning. Uh, And the dinner is all about um, which of these two outcomes is going to occur. Um, no, we can't do that. We haven't done that before. No, we're just going to let people talk and mm-hmm. we're going to say and we'll feed it back to them the next day. Everybody we have. Uh, now I'm, you know, I'm dismissing what they do because they're, they're good at it. But it's, you're right. They drift or they don't even experiment because to come back to a previous point, you know, the, the experimentation is important. You realize, gee, that wasn't that hard. We can do this. We can make our work more effective. Mm-hmm. We can make it more exciting, you know, uh, scenario planning. Um, which is, you know, one of those wonderful tools. Mm-hmm. But you've got to do it with a different purpose um, and, and know what, what you're trying to get to on some of this stuff because, uh, you know, we want to position tapestry as a unique organization that can handle multi-stakeholder problems with great complexity and, and dynamics. You know, we don't want to be a static problem solver. We want to understand the dynamics and, and have people understand those dynamics. And then you get it, you know. Then maybe you can get more than three drugs in the Alzheimer's pipeline. You know, then you can make a progress on palliative care in the United States where people write living wills and they're ignored by the medical community. Um, you know, these are the kind of complex problems that even McKinsey and BCG are not set up to solve because mm-hmm. uh, they can't handle multi-stakeholder environments. Mm-hmm. You know, come back to McKinsey. You know, which of those two firms might really make a great push into multi-stakeholder problem solving, where where um, the goal is to create more value for society and then share it appropriately, rather than win at somebody else's expense. Um, you know, that's that's a that kind of gets me excited. And it's uh, something that's so it's not tangible. So it's interesting how you get such tangible benefits by the way you frame issues and frame the positioning of a business or even the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and sometimes that framing you remember in search of excellence mm-hmm. and they, they used that a superordinate goal. Yeah. And it was just you know, it was a it was a way of getting consonants in the seven S framework. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I at first I thought, oh that's a bunch of crap, you know. But in fact the superordinate goal is really important, you know. What are you trying to do here on drug development? Are you trying to get, when you get all these enemies in the room, you know, ladies and gentlemen, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to get the right drug to the right people at the right price? Does anybody object? To Always that? about asking the right question. Yeah, yeah. And and then, you know, then people can say, yeah, but can the drug companies make enough money doing it? Well, how could they make enough money doing that? Well, let's save $500 million the cost of developing the drug. That might help, you know. Because um, then they're, they'll they'll make their return on investment. Um, and the problem is that if if you let the budget dictate your thinking, you will never experiment with new thinking. Exactly, and you won't think in terms of dynamic systems. Mm-hmm. You'll think of static situations, static accounting. Yeah, yeah, the curse of MPV. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's that's what's turning. Around. You know, the funny thing about it is taking me back in the social marketing days, uh, where you're thinking about you know. So we've come full circle. Yeah, in a sense we have. You know, and hopefully life is about, you know, pulling it all together. Uh, well, you certainly had a very interesting life, a lot of dots to connect. Yeah, and, and uh, fortunately I'm, I'm married to a wonderful woman you know, for 25 years, and we just bought this new house on Long Island. You've, you caused me to think about something here. The, the new house, we have two houses here. One in Connecticut is built by Philip Johnson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of his best. It's a pristine international modern house. and. Uh, all furnished, new art, Chinese art, you know, and stuff. And then we had this 1730 house in Long Island uh, that we bought 25 years ago, right on the water on the bay in the village of Orient. And it's a wonderful antique. And it's filled with antiques and, you know, nice prints and stuff. But then we had all this stuff that I've collected over the years that wouldn't fit neither in storage for 20 years. And then two years ago, we bought this little place on the Sound mile and a quarter away with magnificent views out on the rocks and all this stuff in storage. And for the last two years, we've been taking all this furniture and art and stuff that I collected 
out of storage, out of the basement, and pulling it together in a new place, and then adding new art, etc. And it's been the most fun in the world, and in a sense, I'm physically doing with this third house, what you just suggested, you know. You know, we all try to do, which was pull our ideas, even the bad ones, yeah. together. In the end, Find and make, yeah, make it something new. And we're just having, we're having the best time. Um, and and it's, there's something nice about, you know, um, seeing this dry sink you bought in Alexandria, Virginia. back. And in thinking about why you bought it. Why you bought it and how it stood the test of time. Yeah. And how it can work with, with something new, you know, upstairs, believe it or not, in in the TV area is our two Wassily chairs that Fred Gluck used to have in his office at McKinsey. And, you know, and every time I sit down, yeah. I remember Fred, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's a nice, I just turned 68. I'm, uh, a nice period in my life where, you know, thoughts and feelings are coming together and, uh, um, and, and doing this kind of work for tapestry and hoping they can pull it off is, um, you know, it gives you, it gives you a reason to get up and think and read. And I've been doing a lot of, you know, rereading books on scenario planning, rereading books on systems dynamics, um, and and because you know you forget a lot of that stuff. But you read with purpose. You don't just read. Uh, I'm not a guy who just reads. I've never been a book reader, you know. But I'm kind of recollecting ideas the way I recollect it, 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 It's like watching a movie for the fourth time and noticing things you never really saw before. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, and. Uh, you know, you don't get older, you don't get younger, you just sort of pull things together a little bit better. And I think the brain is still, my brain is still working okay, um, despite the occasional bottle of wine. Occasionally it's good, as long as it's good yeah. wine, and it is summer, it the is. dying days of summer. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Thank you well, so listen, much. If you want, if, I... Yeah, if you want to continue this sometime, or if we miss something, feel free to set up another call.